ah, sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinock. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Today, for this show, you're going to get a dose of me speaking from the heart. And I'm going to take off my lawyer's hat for a few minutes and put on my preacher's hat. And we're going to call this show, Whatever Happened to Grace? Whatever Happened to Grace? Now, if there's one thing that all of us who are Christians share in common is the belief that we are unworthy and that we are recipients of a profound gift of grace, that the life and death and atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ providing eternal life for us is not because of our inherent worthiness. It's, uh, you know, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short, we have a debt we could never repay, and we are the recipients of grace. And that is kind of the central tenet, if you will, of the Christian faith, is grace. And grace is our primary witness to the world, is to witness to the grace of Christ in his life and death and, and resurrection and in, in the salvation that he's offered to us. But these days, the world here in America does not see grace coming from the church. And this is what we need to talk about. This is what we need to understand. A generation or so ago, there were, and I'll give you a little bit of a history lesson here, Roman Catholic political activists were looking for ways to engage Protestants in what we now call culture wars. Because back in the 60s and the 70s, Evangelical Protestants were not uh, really engaged in any kind of uh, pursuit of political power. There was uh, certainly a profound religious element and enthusiasm behind the anti-Vietnam War effort and in favor of civil rights. But from the conservative side, people were content to be left alone. But that being left alone ended or the perception that, well, we were being left alone ended when the Internal Revenue Service went after Bob Jones University and took away its tax-exempt status. You know, today, we live in a time when the non-discrimination rules are so pervasive that it's hard to recall even or to imagine a time when Christian schools were allowed to be racist. They were allowed to be whites-only schools. There were no laws to, uh, to prevent that. And so the IRS began to say, look, this is not consistent with our federal policy of civil rights, that you can be nonprofit and enjoy tax-exempt status, the benefits of it, and be racially discriminatory. And the perception then became from Protestants throughout the country, and especially in the Bible Belt, that we're not being left alone, that now we're being targeted. And they became much more responsive to the efforts of Catholic activists to join in culture warfare. And probably the first act 
with the formation of the moral majority in 1979 was to choose Ronald Reagan as a candidate of choice over Jimmy Carter. And of course, you know, that that was kind of an interesting choice because, you know, we all will recall that Jimmy Carter is and was a Baptist Sunday school teacher and certainly a very sincere man of born-again Christian faith. But his politics were more liberal than that of Ronald Reagan. Reagan, on the other hand, was a very worldly Hollywood, came out of Hollywood community, very worldly, uh, not religious person. But uh, he was able to sell himself as the more conservative. But during the Reagan years, during the Bush administration, the culture warriors on the right had really very little influence and accomplishments. They didn't have political power. But the movement began to mature. You will recall folks like Pat Robertson ran for president, uh, followed by Pat Buchanan, very active culture warrior. And, you know, we fast forward and we're living at a time when after a generation of the conservative culture warriors' pursuit of power, It's a be careful what you wish for scenario because now conservative culture warriors are in power and key figures in our government are just that, conservative culture warriors and are seeking to reshape things according to their religious values. And and many of those values are values that that most Christians will agree with. So I got to give you a caveat here because, you know, my discussion here is not intended to be a political one. It's not about whether certain political policies, certain laws are good or bad, whether certain political parties are good or bad. It's not intended to be political at all. What I really want to focus on is the fact that for the leadership, the Christian leadership in our country that has pursued power, it is at the expense of grace, and with it at the expense of Christian witness in our nation. The onlooking secular world looks at the way Christian leaders have cozied up to power and make excuses for bad behavior. You know, however much you may like the policies of our president, however much you may like his you know, kind of a strong, bully sort of, uh, you know, persona. The fact is he's also engaged in some really abominable behavior. And you have Christian leaders that simply rubber stamp everything that he does, make excuses, you know, back him, uh, those from outside of power. But then you have those in power who are, you know, actively doing culture warfare. So why do I say it's an abandonment of grace? Grace is the bloodstream of the Christian community. And the role of the church, we have in the Old Testament, we have two types of religious leaders. You have the priesthood and you have the prophets. The priesthood were part of the political establishment. They were the status quo. And the status quo in any society, is always falling short of God's moral and spiritual ideal. So then you have the prophets. 
And the prophets are the ones who are not in power. They have very little to lose, and they will speak God's truth to power and call people to repent and call the society to a higher moral and spiritual plane. The role of the church throughout history has been to serve the prophetic function, and not in terms of predicting, prophecy is prediction, but as speaking truth to power, because the power structures are always fallen. They're human. They're always going to fall short of the glory of God. So when we align ourselves and say, no, we want to be the power structure, we're committing ourselves to fallen, to a fallen system and to being the ones who need to be called to repentance. It's, uh, you know, it's really a devil's bargain. You know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Jesus uh, being confronted by the devil in the wilderness and being offered the, you know, rulership of the whole world if they'll just bow down before the devil. Well, it seems today the church has taken that deal. When we seek political power, we abandon our true role and function of speaking truth to power. You don't speak truth to power from inside the White House, from inside the walls of Congress. You speak truth to power from outside. And here we are now with Christians running this country, conservative culture warriors running this country. And what does the unchurched, onlooking secular world make of it? If you have been reading any of the mainstream press, which is now all derided as as having a liberal bias, I understand that, but, you know, you should read it with an eye towards, you know, what's their view of the church? What's their view of the gospel? What's their view of Jesus? So we have a culture that's increasingly behaving harshly and full of harsh rhetoric against various groups. Like the Muslims, we've had the Muslim ban. Uh, we have, uh, you know, harsh immigration policies, and we have uh, been very harsh in our rhetoric towards immigrants. Uh, the culture warriors are very harsh in their rhetoric about folks in the LGBT community. And I think when we do this, I call it othering. When we define people in various groups as the other, and, you know, it's us and them, they're the other. When we do this, what are we saying about Jesus? I mean, maybe there's some who still hold to the view that Jesus only died for a few, that he only really died to save the elect. Uh, There is that belief circulating in Christianity. It is a doctrine, but I think most of us, Read John 3.16, whosoever believes in him. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Anybody, all are welcome. And yet these days, Christian America, because that's how we style ourselves, Christian America is not holding out the welcome mat. And we're not saying that whosoever will. We're saying Jesus is for us white Americans. Jesus is not for you poor immigrants from toilet bowl countries. Jesus is not for you if you're gay. Jesus is not for you if you're Muslim. Well, uh, the Great Commission calls on all of us Christians to share the love of Christ with everyone, everyone. 
That's God's grace. Not everybody's going to believe. Not everybody's going to be in heaven. Words of that old gospel song. Everybody talk about heaven ain't going there. And that brings me, I think, to my final point. I want to end on a positive note. I've thought a lot about how can we effectively witness for Christ at a time when Jesus is so misunderstood as being associated basically with a racist and bigoted church, because that's how it's seen. And I'm not calling anyone a racist. I'm not saying that anyone in particular is bigoted, but that's how the church is appearing today to those who are outside. This is something we need. Those of us who are inside the church, we've got to understand this and we've got to deal with it. I think that the judgment parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 holds the key. You know, we're called those who stand on the right side of the judgment, gave a cup of cold water to the thirsty, clothed the naked, fed the hungry, took in the stranger, etc. And when they did it, without realizing it, they were doing it to Jesus. And they were doing it to the least of these. Who are the least? The least are the ones that we are most willing to write off. So I think that this is the challenge for us as the church today in America, is individually and in our churches, in our bodies, how do we serve the least? How do we see Jesus in others? How do we recover the centrality of grace? Thank you for listening. As we close, folks, remember, freedom is definitely not free. Be informed, get involved. Join the North American Religious Liberty Association, producer of Freedom's Reign. And you can find NARLA, as we call it, on the web at religiousliberty.info. Be sure to listen to Freedom's Ring on SoundCloud or on iTunes. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Rock. Until next week, let freedom ring.